And then Menzies calls the election. Now Menzies wasn't all that popular, but he wins the election. But Everett is absolutely devastated. Because Everett thinks he's begun, he thinks all his life he's destined to become Prime Minister. And he looks around for someone to blame, and he blames the Catholics in Victoria. He blames Santa Maria. Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm a scholar, writer, and translator who specializes in political theology, the intersection of religion and politics. It's a very great pleasure to be joined by Jared Henderson, who is an author, columnist, and political commentator. You may have read his articles in The Australian or other newspapers in Australia. You may have seen him on the ABC or Sky News, or I'm guessing possibly he's been on every single channel at some stage. In his uh, long and influential career, he's also the executive director of the Sydney Institute, a privately funded Australian current affairs forum. He's written an impressive number of books on key periods in Australian history or figures. And we're going to discuss one of those figures in this episode of the podcast in the form of B.A. Santa Maria. And I believe Jared has written actually three books on Santa Maria. And I've had the Privilege of uh, reading his most recent book on Santa Maria, which is called Santa Maria, A Most Unusual Man. That was published by the Maginia Press in 2015, and I really enjoyed that read. But before we dive into The Most Unusual Man, Santa Maria, Jared, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for the invitation, Jonathan. I think we, we will touch on some of the key episodes in Australian history uh, that the name Santa Maria is closely associated with, um, namely the this thing called the Movement, which is a mysterious and interesting <laughs> organisation, if that's even the right term. We'll unpack that, which involves the communist, communist movement in Australia, trade unions, the Labour Party, and, of course, he was at the centre of the infamous Labour Party split in the 1950s and the creation of the Democratic Labour Party, which is still a going concern. I think there might be an upper house DLP member in the Victorian Parliament, if I'm not mistaken. But before we dive into that juicy stuff, we need to ask or pose the fundamental question, who was Bartholomew Augustine Santa Maria and why was he an unusual man? Well, Bartholomew Augustine Santa Maria, that was his name, but he went under the name of Bob. And some of his friends called him Bobby, but virtually people called him Bob, or B.A., uh, B.A. Santa Maria. So Bartholomew Augustine Santa Maria is born in 1915 to two parents who come from uh, the Aeolian Islands in Italy. They come here separately. They meet in Australia. They marry, and Bob Santa Maria is the firstborn, born in 1915, um, in, in Brunswick, Sydney Road, Brunswick, uh, the place where he was born or where, where he lived as a very young child has now pulled down, but the parents lived above a, um, a fruit grocer shop, as they were called in those days, and so they lived upstairs, they had a, a grocery downstairs. Later on, his father moved beyond grocery into liquor. <laughs> it was said by some he was also into SP, which was illegal betting, which is quite possible. His father was quite a gambling man. I have no firm evidence of that, but it's possible. But essentially his father ran a grocer shop, which became a grocer liquor shop. And whilst they started off with not much money, 
uh, as was the, the case with many Australian immigrants of that time. By the time that Bob Samaria got to university, uh, before he was 20 years old, the family was doing okay, and the, fa- the family continued to do okay. So they had some tough times in the Depression in the 1930s, but compared with a lot of the people around them, they weren't too bad. But on the other hand, as Bob always said about his mother I mean, and his father, they worked constantly. They're in the shop all the time. And one of the reasons why he went to school very early as a very, as a very young boy is because his mother wanted him out of the shop because it found it very difficult <laughs> to handle this very active young boy. So he went off to school around the corner at the local Catholic primary school in Brunswick at a very young age. And so by the time he got to university, I think from memory, he was around 16. So he, wow. he, he started very young, 16, 17. So he starts very young, and that's partly the reason why. But... Um, you know, it, it, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't grow up in a period of great poverty, although there was a lot of poverty around him. But he came up in a sort of struggling immigrant family that was doing well, and uh, continued to do well. So he went to the local primary school. He then went to a Christian brother school in North Melbourne, and they used to pick uh, the Catholics at the time under the leadership of Archbishop Daniel Mannix, who had come out from Ireland becomes Archbishop of Melbourne in 1917. Maddox decides the best way for Catholics in Australia who were really down the bottom of the pile, the way to get up the pile was through education. And so in, in, the, in the Archdiocese of Melbourne, Maddox brought about a situation where all the, top, all the top boys from the various Christian Brother School uh, would go to St Kevin's College where they'd do their final two years and then hopefully they would go into university, which is what happened with, with Santa Maria. He actually did a third year from memory uh, because he was so young. But, um, and that worked and he went to Melbourne University, did an arts degree and a law degree. It was a good arts degree. It wasn't a brilliant arts degree because I don't think he was particularly interested in, in academic scholarship. He got a law degree, so he graduates with a B, what would now be called a BA honours, which in those days became an MA after a certain time. So he graduates MA, LLB, but he never practices law and um, he doesn't uh, go into teaching or academic life. He goes into a Catholic life. Interesting, a Catholic life. Well, at a young age, he's, um, he's active at Melbourne University. I mean, when, in this book that I did... Um, as you mentioned, the publisher, which is part of Melbourne University Press, um, I point out that he's involved in politics. If you look at Farago, Melbourne University magazine, from around 1933 till he dies in 1998. So he's active at a very young stage. He sets up, with the financial support of his father, a magazine called The Catholic Worker, which he edits for a while. (laughs) But Bob being Bob, I mean, he was the editor, he was the publisher... He was the book reviewer. Uh, he was the seller. I mean, he was everything. And eventually people on, the, on, on his board rebelled against him and pushed him out, which he said to me once was the greatest mistake he ever made was being pushed out. Um, greatest mistake he made being pushed out? Well, because he agreed to being pushed out oh, in okay. the sense. I mean, he didn't good, fight it, in other words. He that didn't was, fight it. And yeah. he, but it was his money that, or his f- family's money that helped establish it, oh, and he lost yeah. control of it. And it was... I'll come back to this in a minute. It was pointed out to him he couldn't hold that job as editor of the Catholic Worker whilst he was running the Australian National Secretariat of Catholic Action. I'll come back to that in a minute. So so he's, he's involved in the Catholic 
He's active in the debates in Melbourne University, the big debate in, just after he left university on the Spanish Civil War in 1936 at Melbourne University. He was, he was, he was active in that debate on Spain, which is of particular interest to Catholics. Um, and he was writing in the, occasionally in the student newspaper. So he's active from, from politics from a very young age, and that continues through all his life. So when you write a history of Santa Maria, you're essentially writing the history of the 20th century Australia, mm-hmm. which is what I tried to do in this book. I really start off around Federation and, and run it through till he dies um, shortly before the turn of the, of the century. Um, now, I mentioned the issue of Catholic action because around the time he graduated, and he did... he. He didn't go into law, as it turned out. He may have done his articles, I can't recall now. But Archbishop Mannix asked him to become... They'd set up the Australian National Secretary of Catholic Action, which was supposed to be an attempt by Catholics to influence society, particularly young people. So they had a young Christian movement, uh, they had a rural movement, a young women's movement, um, and a number of these movements. And Santa Maria was not the head of it. That job went to Frank Ma, who was an older man. But Santa Maria became the, the deputy director of the Australian National Secretariat of Catholic Action, which was called ANSCA. Well, let's just call it Catholic Action. And his opponents on the Catholic Weekly said, well, that was a paper that wasn't connected with the church and it couldn't be edited by a man who was the executive director of the Catholic Action, Australian National Secretary of Catholic Action. So Santa Maria stepped down. But he told me later, as I said before, that it was one of the greatest errors he ever made because he shouldn't have stepped down. He didn't... <laughs> He didn't like losing fights. So, um, you know, from his point of view, I can understand that. So the early period of the Catholic worker is his period, but as the years go on, the Catholic worker becomes one of his main opponents. Around the time of the Labour split, as you mentioned earlier, around the mid-50s, his big opposition from within the Catholic Church is coming from the Catholic worker guys in Melbourne, and they were guys, and they were the men or young men with whom he established the Catholic worker 20 years earlier in uh, in. Um, in around 1935. So he runs into, he becomes a member of the Australian National Secretary of Catholic Action. He's working with Frank Ma, but as I point out in the book, I mean, there are a great deal of divisions because Ma was a family friend. He was an older man, but he was a family friend of Santa Maria for a long time. But I knew Frank Ma because he taught me first year law. He was one of the main lecturers. And he was, uh, and I knew his family a little bit. And Frank Ma was a very proper and very honest, um, thorough, decent kind of guy. <laughs> He's a bit too nice for modern politics. And Frank was uh, interested in the theory of things. He, he set up something called the inquiry. We would inquire into, you know, why young men were having trouble getting jobs, why, if you're a Catholic, you couldn't get promoted, and all sort of these discussions or discussions about the faith and Sam Maria was a real doer he wasn't really into theory and much and so at one stage and because he used to write notes to Frank Maher and they'd write notes back and some stage Sam Maria objected all these people having to inquire into things he said <laughs> yes he ends up saying to Frank Maher why don't we have an inquiry into the inquiry <laughs> and what happened was look this is contested but I'm very certain about my position um, the war was just nearing an end at this stage because Santa Maria takes up that job in 1939 and the wars uh, commences. Um, the wars ending in 1945 and then Daniel Mannix decides to send Frank Maher on an overseas study tour. Well, he didn't get very far. He got to England. 
not the whole of Britain, just to England. He got, uh, he was trying to get into Europe, into Belgium and France, but I mean, it was just the end of the war. The whole thing was chaos, and he was very upset. And then, in his um, when he was overseas, Sanderman writes this note to Manic saying, "Look, you know, we don't really have a director at the moment. Perhaps I could step in." And of course, he steps in, and when Frank comes back, he doesn't have a job. Now, I'm not saying they cut him off financially, but effectively, effectively, Santa Maria pushed Mar out of Catholic action. Now, trying to be objective, because I knew them both. Well, I knew Santa Maria very well. I knew Frank Mar a little bit. Um, I could feel very sorry for Frank Mar's position, but the, on the other hand, he wasn't really suitable for the job. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can understand why Mannix didn't want him there because he was kind of too nice. You know, you, you're going to run an organisation and a society at the time was a lot of anti-Catholic sectarianism around. Uh, you need someone who's pretty tough and wants to have a go. And Frank wasn't really suited, so he, he ends up at Newman College tutoring, and eventually he gets a job at Melbourne University in the law school there because the place is a bit of a shambles. They're not handling their first-year students well at all. And they bring Frank Maher in to sort of overcome the problem of young men and women going into university and being sort of not handled well by law staff. You don't, and Frank was very good at that. So he taught first-year law and some other law subjects for quite some time at Melbourne University, and he was very good at that job. He was excellent at that job. I can remember his lectures. He was absolutely a first-class academic, but he was, it was never going to be a political operative, even in a Catholic organisation like the, the Australian National Secretary of Catholic Action. So Santa Maria takes over the Australian National Secretary of Catholic Action, and he's dominating that by 1945. But three years earlier, or two years earlier, depending on who you believe, um, <laughs> he also gets caught up in the movement. Which is, a, which immediately, the fact, the fact that even the year is not clear and just that is an interesting turn of phrase there, he gets caught up in the movement. I mean... You know, even your 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 book is very clear and lucid, and it's meticulous. But as I think you mentioned to me in a phone call we had setting up this uh, podcast, one one of the reasons he was an unusual man, I think you just said it some moments ago, is that he just had his hands in so many different yep. organisations. And as you were talking about the Catholic worker, just for those who aren't across the detail of his life, I mean he. If I've got this right, he he founds, edits, and or contributes to multiple publications, including later in his life, the Australia, mm. he writes a column in the Australian, yeah. other mm. um, newspapers. He ends up with a television program, I mm. think, on Channel 9 yep. later uh, in his life. And so he, and I'm fast forwarding, he becomes a big public yeah. figure, particularly through the political stuff. But he's, he, uh, it's hard to come to grips <laughs> with exactly what it is yeah. that he did and of all these things the movement even after reading your book it was like it was like trying to find your way through a maze in the labyrinth because it, it's such an un, it seems like such an unusual thing i don't even know how to describe it well so even how do we begin to <laughs> <laughs> well even san Maria didn't know when it was formed i, I got very suspicious because when i looked out the date he actually gave was the date of his birthday <laughs> i was a bit suspicious about that he said the first meeting was held on i think it was the 15th of august and i said hang on that's his birthday i mean i don't i don't i don't think he remembered so w- what happened was he's running he's running the australian national, Se- national secretary of catholic action and then his his position is this and it's probably true that a number of people anti-communists in the labor party quite a few of whom were Catholic, but some of them were not, went to him and said, we have a real problem with communism and the trade union movement, which was correct. 
1945, the Communist Party dominated the Australian trade union movement because they dominated the unions, or many of the unions, and then from the unions elected what's now called the ACTU, the Australian Catholic Trade, uh, trade Union Congress. Um, and they said, look, what we need to do is we need to drive the communists out of the union positions. To do that, you've got to get unionists who vote. You've got to get not only people who are unionists, but unionists who will vote. And of course, this was having an impact on the, on the Australian Labor Party as well, because the unions would then have a probably elect about 70% of the delegates and would essentially determine pre-selections. So some Labor, some Labor Party men and some trade union men go to Bob and say, well, look, you know, what can we do? Now, at this stage, Bob goes to the bishops and puts up a proposal. The first meeting was probably held, well, he, he said it was 1941, then he said it was 1942. So it doesn't really... I mean, there probably was no official start. It probably just happened. <laughs> By 1945, he goes to the bishops and asks them to fund it. Originally, Archbishop Mannix is putting in money in Melbourne, but Melbourne is only one part of the Catholic Church. And in 1945, he gets the bishops to fund it. So the entire hierarchy pay a levy for each archdiocese and diocese, and they fund what was called the Catholic Social Studies Movement, which became called the movement, but it was the CSSM. So by the time we get to 1945, Santa is running the Australian National Secretary of Catholic Action from one office in Melbourne and the Catholic Social Studies Movement from another office in Melbourne. And he would spend the morning in one office and then take a walk and it's in the <laughs> afternoon in the other office, all the while maintaining that the organisations were separate. Um, and he got away with that for a while, but before I ended up, what happened to Ansker? Um, now, what happened was that the, the movement working with what were called the industrial groups. Now, the Labor Party itself set up the industrial groups. They were anti-communist Labor guys, but the people who ran the industrial group didn't have the rank and file support. Whereas Sanary knew, with the support of Daniel Archbishop Mannix, that where could you find unionists gathered together at Mass on Sunday? Mm. And because the Catholics in those days, you know, 70% of them would have gone to church. And so they gathered in churches. Often in a church there would be four Masses on one day, on one Sunday morning. And if the Archbishop was on site, I'll just talk about Melbourne at the moment, Archbishop Mannix was on site then the priest in the parishes would follow Mannix and the word would go out, we need some good Catholic labour men who are in, the, say, the Clarks Union or iron workers or metal workers or railway union or wharfs. We need them to get active in their own union and vote out the Communist Party membership and the, where there was a Communist Party membership, which was in many of the unions, and vote in anti-communist whether they're Catholic or not Catholic, it didn't matter. They were, they were voting out communists and replacing them with anti-communist. Now, the reason why the industrial groups were at it really before Santa Maria got involved, but they didn't have the strength to do it. But what Santa Maria bought was foot soldiers, and they were amazingly successful. And by and large, they overturned the communist leadership in many of the unions. So by the time you got to... Um, by the time you got to um, uh, 
the early 50s, a lot of the problems in the communist, in the trade union movement had been resolved because a lot of the communist leadership had been thrown out. And whilst there were still communist trade union leaders, there was nothing like there was, and they didn't have the domination of the, of the Australian Labor Party that they did. And so then the issue came, by the time you get to about 1952, 53, I mean, should you close down the Catholic Social Studies movement? Because what it was supposed to do was to drive the communist out of, or diminish the power of the communist within the trade union movement and within the Labour Party. And by the early 50s, that had occurred. They hadn't been defeated, but they'd certainly been diminished. And then the issues was, well, do you continue the movement or do you close it down? Now, at this stage, San Marino got very ambitious and said, no, I want to continue it because we can do more. We can actually change aspects of Australian society in foreign policy and uh, social policy and rural policy, economic policy. Um, and for that, he had the support of Mannix. Um, but he didn't have the support of all the bishops, particularly in New South Wales. And so eventually what happened was... Um, the Australian National Secretariat of Catholic Action broke first. The bishops really didn't want to continue to support it, so that was closed down. Santa Maria continued the National Catholic Rural Movement, but the, the other organisations were closed down, and he continued with the movement. Um, but then the split in the Labour Party came, we'll come back to that in a minute, and then eventually half the Catholic bishops walked away from the movement and half of them stayed. So what essentially happened was that um, even before the split in the Labour Party, which occurs, starts in the late, 19, uh, late 1954, runs into 1955, even as that's happening, so the Catholic hierarchy is splitting, and the essential split is between Cardinal Norman Gilroy in Sydney, with the support of Bishop who becomes Archbishop James Carroll, who's his deputy in a way, and Archbishop Daniel Mannix in Melbourne. And the Catholic hierarchy just splits about 50-50 as to whether they'll continue to support the movement. Now, the reason for that was, was for political reasons, essentially. New South Wales had pretty well had a Labour government for most of the first half of the 20th century. The Catholic Church in Sydney, in particular, was very close to the Labour Party. The Labour Party was in government for most of that time. Santa Maria, on the other hand, came up in Melbourne. The Labour Party had rarely been in office through the first half of the 20th century in Victoria. Um, and the, the Catholic Archbishop of Melbourne, Daniel Mannix, wouldn't have cared at any rate, but he didn't have any close connections with the Labour Party. So a number of the Catholics in Melbourne got concerned about the movement, and they were worried that the movement would affect their own positions and influence and jobs. And Mannix, on the other hand, thought that the fight against communism and these other matters that Santa Maria was contesting on, including issues like state aid for Catholic and other, other Christian schools and whatever, that that fight should continue. So eventually, the movement finally splits in 1957, but this tension is running from about 1955, and the Labour Party itself splits in 1955, and now we should talk about that. Yeah. Before I do, I just want to pick up a couple of interesting threads that came out of the the movement period. And in particular, I just want to drill down on this question of communism in Australia, because I it's funny, you know, being plugged into contemporary political discourse, particularly on the right in Australia, um, 
you know, there's a there's a Marxist or neo-Marxist or cultural Marxist boogeyman sitting behind everything that's wrong with society today. And it's it's interesting. Uh, I'm not commenting on whether that's right or not, but it's interesting to juxtapose that with the period where there actually was an organised communist movement in Australia looking to come to power, as I understand it. So could you could you speak a little bit about what the communist tactic was? It was clearly to infiltrate the trade union movement, presumably through that the Labor Party, but also just how influ- how many communists were they? How, how influential were they in this particular period of Australian history? Well, at the 1945 Australian Congress of Trade Unions, ACTU meeting, um, the communists had about close to 50% of the delegates. Wow. So it was very high. And they controlled many... Now, it was a little bit different in different states, but they controlled a lot of the railway unions, the uh, ironworkers union, the um, uh, uh, the mining unions. I mean, they controlled many of the big unions and they had to be displaced, including the Clarks Union. My father was a member of the Clarks Union, so he was one of these. He was a grouper who was also a Catholic who was a member of the movement, but he basically he was just a bloke who went to Mass on Sunday with his family and... Um, went out to meetings of a night and collected money and knocked on doors and tried to get people to vote. So it was a very democratic act that he was doing. But it's often underlooked, uh, uh, underestimated just how influential the Communist Party was. I mean, they, they dominated the trade union movement before they were removed. For the most part, they were removed. Now, when some of them have written up um, their memoirs in later years and they actually say that they were intent of coming to power. And they would their, their view of coming to power really was the way that the Communist Party came to power in parts of Eastern Europe, like Czechoslovakia, where they took over a parliamentary process and closed it down. So they, they won office legitimately and then closed it down. And that, I think, is what they're intent on here. Now, even as late as 1956, <clears throat> which, is, um, which is around... Um, around the time of the Labour split, about a year later, the Hungarian uprising took place and the Communist Party leadership of Hungary rose up against the Moscow domination and the Soviet Union set in tanks and crushed the uprising. Now, this affected the Communist Party of Australia because, you know, they were Australians, but also they were communists. They were getting paid by Moscow. And Eric Ahrens wrote this up in his book, although when I quoted it in one of my newspaper articles, he said he didn't write it, but he did write it, and it's quoted in my book. He wrote this. He said there was a debate at the Central Committee of the Communist Party of Australia in 1956-57, around that period, about what should be their attitude to capital punishment, because the leaders of the revolution had been captured by the Soviet Union, and they were all executed. And I visited their ba- their graves. They, they, they visited. They were buried in a mass grave just out of out of um, Budapest, and uh, you can see it there. So the issue was because the Communist Party in Australia had a policy; they were against capital punishment. <laughs> On the other hand, the comrades in Moscow were executing the former comrades in Budapest, the Hungarian leadership. I think it's fair to say the communists in Moscow were pro capital punishment. And, yes. uh... <laughs> and that's right, you've got it in one. And Eric Aaron said that they had this discussion in the Central Committee. And, and the view was, well, we can't condemn Moscow for capital punishment. When we come to power, we've got to kill our own, our own political enemies. He actually wrote it up. Wow. And when I quoted it, because most people didn't read his book, I've got it on the shelves there, I'll show you. Um, 
So that shows you the mindset. And then there was, uh, I spoke to another former communist, uh, Arons was out of the famous communist family in Sydney, but I spoke to one of the communist families in Melbourne, and he, um, Bernie Taft. Now, Bernie Taft's right. He said, Bernie Taft, in his memoir, he ended up being personally friendly with Santa Maria. Taft did. But Taft said, look, you know, I now look back on it all and I realise how naive we were, naive we were, he said. He said, we firmly believed that we would come to power in Australia. Now, these guys were serious. Now, some of them, some of them were involved in espionage and sending secret material to Moscow. Some of them were. Not Aaron's, uh, not the principal communist guy was Laurie Aaron's. Eric was his brother. Not the Aaron's family, but others were. We know that now. Um, and they were agents of the Soviet Union. I mean, they did what the Soviet Union told them to do. So we're dealing with this period, you know, between uh, the 1920s when the Communist Party is established and um, 1968 when it finally breaks away, the official Communist Party breaks away from Moscow. But that's a period of 40 years or nearly close to half a century. They were told what they would do. So that was their intentions. Now, people like Santa Maria thought, with the support of Archbishop Mannix, thought, well, they might, they might do that. The guys around the Catholic Weekly, I'm oh, sorry, the Catholic Worker, they said, oh, you know, come on, there's always a police force and there's always the army and, you know, who can stop them? Well, but Sandbury didn't hold that view. And I think looking back on it, Sandbury's position was correct. But of course, there are always errors are made and these things and issues are exaggerated and wrong people are targeted and whatever else. But as to the question as to whether the Communist Party in Australia was a threat to Australian democracy. Well, it was. How do we know that? Because they eventually said they were, and they were everywhere else. And we also know that there was a spy ring within the, um, within the Communist... Uh, there was a ring within the Communist Party that assisted the espionage that went in in Canberra around the time of the Petrov affair when Vladimir Petrov, the third secretary in the Soviet Union embassy in Canberra, defected in 1954... It was the most important affection of the West because he and his wife brought with them all that took place within the, within the West. Because he and his wife brought with them huge numbers of documents which identified the people who were leaking very important security material because then as now we were part of what is called the Five Eyes. Now the Five Eyes is the United States, Britain, Canada, New Zealand, Australia. And anyone in the Five Eyes group got access to this material. So you're dealing with highly important material about development of nuclear weapons, strategic uh, policy and whatever else. And, and the Communist Party in Australia was the conduit between those who were spies within the es espionage spies within the Australian Department of External Affairs, as it was then called, now the Department of Foreign Affairs. They were the ones who got the material out of there and a conduit back to the Soviet Union. And we know that now. And, and even a number of left-wing historians who've looked at this now concede that. So there is pretty well unanimous agreement in Australia now that the Communist Party was was very important, that it was intent on over, over, overturning Australian democracy, that it was funded by the Soviet Union, and it did. parts of its members were involved in espionage. Now, all of them wanted to take over in Australia. Not all of them, not all of them were traitors to the Soviet Union, but some of them were, like Clayton and some others. And we know all these names now, and... Um, and none of that's a secret. Now, for a long time, Santa Maria was accused of being obsessive and, uh, uh, you know, the arguments. But essentially, that analysis was, was correct. And 
but the the question then is how do you handle it and i think it's probably um i think santa maria could have handled some matters differently uh he was very much a victorian he's very much a melbourne man he lived his whole life within a sort of circle <laughs> around around melbourne and um when i launched my i launched my book in melbourne and tony abbott was prime minister and he did the launch and I put up a map of where Santabry lived in Melbourne, which was born in Brunswick, and people in Melbourne would know this sort of this born in Brunswick. He he moves to Borwin, and then from Borwin he moves to Hawthorne, and his his office is in the CBD, and then he moves to North Melbourne. So it's a, like an oval. So I said it was a bit like it's a bit like an Australian football game where he he spent a he spent a bit of time on the back line defending, and then. Uh, for the most time, he, um, he he was around he was around the forward line trying to kick goals, and every now and then he he went over to the route to to the to the interchange bench. But he he didn't want to go on the interchange bench much because he always wanted to be involved. So um, and you had this sort of conflict between the anti-communist in Victoria and the anti-communist within the Labor Party in New South Wales, and they split. So come to the split. The split is essentially the instigated... Santa Maria got blamed for the Labour Party split. It was very unfair. Look, he wasn't influential enough to cause any split. <laughs> but he had influence. But he... Look, at the time... Santa Maria's born in 1915. So by the time he gets to the Labour Party split, he's 40 years old. He's a young man. He's, he's running a... He's running in 1955. By then, the Catholic Action had closed down, but the movement's going... So he's running a small Catholic organisation based in Melbourne that's got, that's got offices throughout most of Australia. But he's only 40 years old. He's not a member of the Labor Party, but he has friends in the Labor Party. Now, what happened was that... Everett, I think it's fair to say, was a sociopath. Bert Everett um, became, was, a, was a minister in the, in the wartime government of... Um, of John Curtin and Ben Chifley. Labour loses office in December 49 to Robert Menzies-led Liberal Party. And Chifley dies in 1951, and Abbott becomes leader of the Labour Party in 1951. So Abbott's the leader of the Labour Party in 1951. But he's erratic. And I think, I think now it's beyond doubt that he had a, suffered a serious mental illness for most of his life. So he's the leader of the Labour Party in 1951. Um, in 1954, Chifley loses the election of 51 and dies soon after. In 1954, Everett is the Labour leader, and it's anticipated that he will win the election. And he didn't. He was unlucky. He got a majority of votes, but not a majority of seats. Labour's vote was very concentrated in the working-class areas, and it wasn't spread widely throughout the, throughout the cities. And whilst he won a majority of votes, he didn't win a majority of seats, which has happened on a number of occasions. I think that was one of his problems. I always thought the other main reason why Ebert lost was not Santa Maria, but it was Queen Elizabeth. Because the Queen came out here, recently departed Queen, came out here for what was an eight-week tour at the beginning of 54. And when she left, virtually soon after she left, Minty's called the election. So you had this wonderful feeling that went on in Australia for eight eight weeks. I mean, I remember as a young boy, we were Republicans. We weren't we weren't monarchists in our family. But my father and mother they took us in the city, and even at school, I went to a Catholic school. I mean, we did we didn't look to the Queen in in Buckingham Palace. We looked to the Pope in Rome. I mean, well, I mean, we weren't hostile to the monarchy, but 
we, we weren't monarchist. And, um, but at school we were taken uh, on one occasion to see the Queen passing by down in Elfington in one of the Melbourne suburbs and my father took us into the city of a night because all Melbourne was lit up. This was before the Olympic Games. Nothing much happened in, in Melbourne in those days and, um, <laughs> until the Olympic Games. Um, and there was a great feeling around the place. And then Menzies calls the election. Now, Menzies wasn't all that popular, but he wins the election. But Evert is absolutely devastated. Because Evert thinks he's begun, he thinks all his life he's destined to become Prime Minister. And he looks around for someone to blame, and he blames the Catholics in Victoria. He blames Santa Maria. Now, Evert, Evert actually asked... Evert, um, I assume, is not Catholic. Oh, not a Catholic, no. Yeah, OK. Evert, Evert asked Santa Maria to come up in, in 1950, late 50, uh, early fifty four to help write his election policy campaign. So Evert was flirting for a long time with the anti-communist, but Evert would flirt with... I mean, Evert didn't have any sort of clear roots. So what happened was that when he lost, he blamed the Victorian executive, which was really under the control, which was very much influenced by the movement in Victoria. And um, eventually they... Well, there's an argument what happened. I mean, were they expelled or did they resign? But eventually they, they left the party and they formed what became the Democratic Labour Party. But Santa Maria was blamed for that split because the people who split, the seven people who split in the House of Representatives who held Labour seats in the House of Representatives and crossed the floor, they were in opposition, but they crossed the floor, they were... Um, six out of seven were Catholics and about three or four had close relations with Santa Maria. Others didn't. But Santa Maria was kind of the ideological figure who sort of who gave the arguments for all these people. But his, his influence is a bit exaggerated because um, if, if, if Labour had been led by someone else other than Evett, there never would have been a split. Mm. I mean, Evett picked a split, and then he picked a split with a group like Santa Maria who wanted to fight. And so Santa Maria, with the support of Daniel Mannix, and by then he's becoming an influence. Santa Maria's becomes known in 1954-55 for the first time. No, before that, no one had ever heard of him much. And um, he's quite happy to have a fight. So he then decides, well, if Everett's going to go this way, what we'll do is we will get the people who have been kicked out of the party, like my father was expelled. What we will do is we will form another party, the Democratic Labour Party as it became, and we will give our preferences. We will vote DLP1, Liberal Party or country party and now the national party too and and we will take votes from the labor party and we'll pass them over to the coalition and that's what happened and so that's a kind worked. of spoiling strategy the spoiling strategy and Sandman always said look the the aim was to cause enough harm to the labor party that eventually they would come and seek a compromise and there would be a peace settlement and it nearly came about in 1965 the labor leader in the senate um Keneally uh was a Catholic, but not a movement man, didn't like Santa Maria much, but Keneally started efforts to negotiate. But they were blocked essentially by, and Gough Whitlam was sort of sympathetic to that, who was then a deputy Labour leader, but they were blocked by Arthur Corwell. Arthur Corwell was a Catholic from Melbourne, also went to CBC North Melbourne, couldn't stand Santa Maria, could never stand him, because in a sense, Santa Maria... And Corwell was were sort of rivals for Mannock's attention and affection. And Corwell, being an older man, had been very close to Mannock's. But Mannock's became a kind of mentor to Santa Maria. 
and there was a lot of animosity between Corbell and Santa Maria, a lot of personal animosity. Corbell's son died tragically of a young age, and um, Santa Maria saw him in a bookshop in Melbourne and went up to him to express his condolences on the death of his son. And Santa Maria would have felt that. I mean, he was a, he was a gentle man in personal relations. And Corbell said he didn't care what he thought and he didn't want his condolences from Santa Maria. And this is in a bookshop in Melbourne, you know, in the middle of the afternoon. So Corbell just hated Santa Maria. And that, so it didn't come about. And then eventually, eventually Labor reforms its of itself, um, nearly wins in 1969, wins in 1972, by then the Democratic Labour Party has faded. So, in a sense, the essential... By his opponents on the left, Sanomir is blamed for Labour's long period in opposition from, uh, from 1954. I mean, they were in opposition from 19, December 49, but from 1954 through to 1972. Um, and I think that's exaggerated, I think. And now seeing your figures like Neville Rann, who, uh, the late Neville Rann, who was a Labour Party Premier for a long time in New South Wales, he wrote um, later on that he felt that the real problem in the Labour Party was Evett. And it was Evett. Without Evett, Labour Party would not have split. But Evett was there, and Santa Maria copped a fair bit of the blame. But Santa Maria was, uh, you know, was happy to, to engage in the battle because he thought he was... He was fighting for what he'd started off fighting for because he felt that with um, the various movement people either silenced or driven out of the Labour Party, silenced within it, like the New South Wales group, or driven out, that the Labour Party would go more to the left. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, that was true. And a lot of a lot of people who had voted Democratic Labour Party came across, and particularly in Victoria and Queensland, because there was another... The split in Victoria took place in 1955, a similar split took place in Queensland in 1957. Now, New South Wales, Western Australia, South Australia and Tasmania didn't split, but these two big states did. And and that was obviously enough to... That was enough. ...prevent Labor from winning office. Cause... Well, Labor nearly won... Labor nearly won um, in this period. <clears throat> they nearly won on two occasions. They nearly won in 1961, when Corwell won his first election... Because Evert steps down about 1960, so Corbell leads them in 61 and gets within one seat of victory. But he didn't win any seats in Victoria. Uh, had, had he won seats in Victoria, he would have got across the line. And again in 1969, by then John Gorton's the uh, Prime Minister, and again um, Labour's very close to victory, but they hold in Victoria. So the, the area where the split came out of, where the Democratic Labour Party was strongest, where the movement was strongest, where all the all the arch well the archbishop Mannix dies in sixty three, but still there's strong well in say in sixty one Mannix is still in still the archbishop. So you look there, then it's not just Melbourne because Mannix supporters there's there's a diocese of um, Sandhurst based on Bendigo, Ballarat and Sal. So those three bishops support the Melbourne Archbishop. So the, there's widespread, it's not just in Melbourne, there's widespread in support in Victoria, then in some other parts. But when the hierarchy split, as it did around in the middle of the 50s, which, so the first book I wrote on Santa Maria was called Mr. Santa Maria and the Bishops, where I just really look at this row between Santa Maria and the Bishops. And what you find is, it, it's very interesting in the sense that the, the hierarchy the splits pretty well 50-50. So half the bishops and archbishops are going on one side, half the archbishops and bishops are on the other side, and so likewise the diocese. So it's a, so the idea that the Catholic Church was 
united at this time, it wasn't, it was divided after 55, but the most important, the most imp where, the, where the movement remained strong was where Labour couldn't break through mm. for a long period. And so Santa Maria is highly involved in all that. But because of his complicated, as you mentioned earlier, his complicated political life, when I wrote this book, Santa Maria, Most Unusual Man, I thought, I can't do a chronologic, chronological account of it all because no one will follow it. So I did a chapter called Santa Maria and Labour and a chapter called Santa Maria and Liberals. And the Liberals, because he's dealing with all these people at the same time. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's talking to Harold Holt and a very influential member of the Menzies government. He's talking to... Um, uh, he's talking to... Let me think. He's talking to Holt. He's talking to Lord K or Casey, uh, who became Lord Casey. He's talking to him. So he's got a lot of influential... F he, he wasn't close to the Mannics. I'm sorry, he wasn't close to Menzies in government. But he is close to a lot of very senior coalition um, ministers during that period of the Menzies government. So he's dealing with them. He's dealing with... Um, um, he's, he's dealing with the Labour Party, but he's not a member of the. He's never was never a member of the Labour Party, and he never voted for the Liberal Party. Jared, <laughs> just before you go on, can I, can I ask a clarifying yeah. question? Because, and again, this just goes to this most unusual man. So, I do I gather I'm just going from recollection from your book and and what you're saying that um, Santa Maria never had any formal role in the DLP. Is it through the movement? that he's influencing the DLP in terms of he can bring, he can swing a number of votes, or is it purely an ideological influence, or is it just relational that he's connected? I think you meant, mentioned that he was close or knew three of those initial seven well, Labor members that uh, crossed the floor. Oh, I'm just trying to understand. Yeah, like, clearly enough. he's a big figure. Where, do, where does the... Well, well let, me, let me go back. I'll take... That's a, it's a good question. I'll just take it in order. Santa Maria never joined or voted for the Liberal Party. No, he never lived in a country area, so he, he only lived in suburban Melbourne, so we're just talking about the Liberal Party, we're not talking about the country party that became the Nationals. He never voted for the Liberals. He, he said that. I think that's pretty true. Um, um, he was never a member of the Labour Party, although people think he was, but he, he wasn't a member of the Labour Party. He never joined the Labour Party. And he was never, never a member of the Democratic Labour Party. <laughs> so... But he influenced, he had an influence on all three without being a member of any of them. Now, in the Labour Party, his influence was through the movement, and we've discussed that. In the Liberal Party, his influence was, he didn't have, he didn't have, because he had people in the unions and he had people in the Labour Party branches, like my father was a member of the Clarks Union and a member of the Baldwin branch of the Labour Party. So he, he, he didn't know Santa Maria at that stage, but he knew who Archbishop Mannix was. Mannix was a great tribal leader. My father knew that Mannix wanted him, you know, voting um, out the communists and the trade union movement and, 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 um, and supporting the DLP after the Labour split, you know. So he had that. But Santa Maria didn't have any of that on the Liberal Party, but he knew people in high places. And he was a, he was a, a brilliant communicator. And I'll come back to that when we talk about his television program later. And he, he, was, a, he, was, an, he was a democratic ideologue. He had very clear ideas. He knew what he wanted. And so that was his influence there. And his greatest impact there was um, before the, um, before the uh, 1963 election, negotiating Commonwealth government support for independent schools. 
Most of the independent schools were Catholic, but not some were Christian, um, some were not neither, but they were mainly Catholic, and that had been something that Catholics had fought for for years. Now, that happened at the Commonwealth level soon after it was followed for similar reasons at the Victorian level, because he put pressure on the Victorian Liberal Party, mainly by threatening to use the DLP preferences against the Liberals in certain seats, and they caved. Now, they were important. So he dealt with the Liberal Party at the level of policy, talking about foreign policy, education policy, that. That's where he dealt with the Liberals. In the Democratic Labor Party, he was never a member of that either. And he was very frustrated, and I bring this out in my book, because he felt that the DLP were not good performers. Essentially, he was right. The leader of the Democratic Labor Party, Vince Gere, for most of the time, Vince was an old-fashioned Queensland um, trade union leader who became Premier of Queensland, who, uh, who ends up being expelled at the time of the split, forms the Queensland Labor Party, which becomes the Democratic Labor Party. Vince Gare, like Arthur Corbell, they're old-fashioned men. They weren't good on television because television comes in the Olympic Games in 1956, but people are getting television sets in the early 1960s. I mean, that's when they go out to the regional areas and people get more money. Um, and so by the time you get to the television age, Gear and Corbell and these others are not really up to it. Frank McManus was a well-educated guy. He went to Melbourne University, which was unusual uh, for Labor people at that time. He was became the, le- the deputy leader of the Democratic Labor Party. He was from Melbourne. But but he and he and Santa Maria didn't talk for many years. He used to write notes to one another. Uh, <laughs> and Santa, look, I, I make the point in the book that the reason why I disagreed with Santa Maria because I I got to know him in 1965 when I was a university student. I um, I worked part time for him in 1970 and 1971, only part time, and I was on his sort of. Uh, conference until 74, 75, where, I, where I, I either resigned or got expelled, I'm not quite sure. You just, you just That's see, like uh, Santa Maria and the Catholic worker. Yeah, you just, you see, you see, I, would have, I would have resigned, but you see he's getting inf- uh, invitations. But what I, what I found was that Santa Maria didn't treat his own people well. He didn't treat his rank and file people well, in my view. And he had every organisation that Bob was involved in I mean, we're not talking about the Labor Party or the Liberal Party. Every organisation he was involved in, there were splits. And I've got a chapter here called Splitsville. <laughs> in the Catholic worker, he split, and he was sort of had to leave. Then the Australian National Secretary of Catholic Action, that had a split, and they closed it down. The Catholic rural movement kept going for a while, but he split with some people in the Catholic rural movement as well, and then that died. Um, then... The Catholic Social Studies movement, that splits around the time of the split. And that mainly splits between the big division between Sydney, the Catholic hierarchy of Sydney and the Catholic hierarchy of Melbourne. So the movement splits. And then he forms the National Civic Council in 1957. And that's when I knew him, uh, or later on, but that I knew the National Civic Council because, as I said, I first met Santa Maria in 1965. And I worked for him in 7071, and I can see here, I just don't think he's treating his people particularly well. And um, in time, the National Civic Council splits in the early 1980s. And so every organisation he was involved in of his own has a significant split. Now, the uh, I was in the room with Santa Maria once in his office in Riverside Road in Melbourne, and um, I think I was just... 
I think at that stage, uh, oh, no, I wasn't working for him, I was, I was an academic at La Trobe University, but I used to, for one year I wrote the editorials in his newspaper, Newsweekly, which ran from uh, 1943, I mean, still going. I mean, he was, as you mentioned earlier, he set up a lot of stuff and he wrote a heck of a lot of stuff. And I was sitting in his room and this guy rings up on the phone. Sandridge usually very secretive about his phone calls, so you never knew who he was talking to, but... He didn't ask. He didn't leave the room, and the call was put through. And I think I know who it was. I mean, I, I think I don't. I don't know. I think it was Jim McCauley, the professor of English at the University of Tasmania, who was a good friend of Santa Maria's, a, a wonderful poet and a very good academic. Sadly, died young at the age of fifty-nine. And I think Macaulay's Macaulay associated with one of Santa Maria's many. He had all these front organisations, like the Communist Party. He had, you know, he had an education front organisation and a defence front organisation, and and he, he was suggesting that a friend of mine. I think I know who he was talking about. I think he was talking about a friend of mine called Ray Evans, who was not a Catholic, but who was involved in these anti-communist movements. And I was a friend of Ray. And I'm pretty sure that Macaulay was talking about Ray. But even if he wasn't, the conversation went like this. The guy on the other end of the phone is saying, look, you should give this job. Now, there wasn't any money in this job. This was a sort of a job that you'd run an education magazine calling for education reform. It's the kind of debate we're having now about the decline of educational standards. It was going on half a century ago, I must say, uh, and for good reason. I mean, it's just got worse. And Santa Maria says to um, the guy on the other end of the phone, so I think he says about Ray Evans to Jim McCauley, you can't trust him, he's only 95% on site. <laughs> now, I don't exaggerate. That, that comment was made. And that was very much, I put it in the book because that was very much his mindset. You had to be 100% on side. So someone like myself, see, when I, when I sat on the board to the, in the conference of the NCC from um, the late 60s through to the mid-70s, or the early 70s, I was the only person in the room who had Santa Maria's education. He was far and away educated beyond all these blokes who'd picked up in the trade union movement and these rank and file. I mean, he, he had an arts honours and a law degree. I had an arts honours and a law degree. He'd read a lot of books. I'd read a lot of books. But I could just see, I mean, and of course, at times I'm a bit irreverent, and maybe I made a few irreverent comments, but he, he didn't like being challenged. He just didn't really like it. He had a very narrow view, and he, he wasn't one to make concessions. And so eventually, um, look, a lot of his opponents are unfair to him. A lot of them exaggerated his faults, and we all have our faults and whatever. But in my view, he didn't handle people well. And um, and that became very evident in the end. Where, I mean, it's in it's in the book. And I, as I said, I don't exaggerate. There, there are a couple. You, you're not a Catholic, are you? But you may or may not have heard of holidays of obligation. When years gone by, Catholics were ex- expected to turn up, apart from mass on Sundays, occasionally do other things about four or five times during the year because this was a special feast day of a saint or something. And so, I call I call I used to call. Melbourne Cup Day in Melbourne, a holy day of obligation, because it was a kind of secular holiday of obligation. Now, so the Melbourne Cup is on a Tuesday. Santa Maria's having a row with this group within the National Civic Council, led by a guy called Gerald Mercer, who'd worked with him for years, and, and John Maines, who'd been in the Clarks Union. And they, they, were, they were bright guys. It, Gerald was an engineer. Maines had left work early, but he's very bright. He left school early, very bright. He made a lot of money and property and stuff. And... He was working for nothing. I mean, he had a, he had these other businesses, and Mercer was working for low income. Um, Mains wasn't full time. Mercer was, so 
the row's going on and they can't get to an agreement. It's go, it's go, actually, go, this row in the NCC goes on for four years. Four years. <laughs> and Santa Maria, on the Monday night, on the eve of the Holy Day of Obligation and the Melbourne Cup on the Tuesday, he puts in the bailiffs. They raid, he's in the central office, which is in North Melbourne, uh, in the CBD of Melbourne. They have another office in Carlton, and they're very close, but the two offices. So there's a national office where Santa Maria is, and there's a state office where Mains is, and uh, where Mercer is, and Mains visits occasionally. Because of the split, they'd moved into separate offices. He puts in the bailiffs, they knock, they knock down the door, they go in, they take over the property, they seal up the filing cabinets. And when the guys turn up at work on Wednesday, it's all closed down. Now, these guys that work for Santa Maria for low salaries, and, and the people around them, there's their secretaries and there are other people in the office, they'd work for Santa Maria for low salaries. They were family men with work for Santa Maria for low salaries for um, years. And, you know, that's not... I just thought that... That happens in 82. Now, when I... My um, book... San, I'm trying to work out when the split happened. So my book, Mr. Sandra and the Bishops, came out a bit before that, and some of Santa Maria's people thought it was too tough. In fact, it was quite fair, I think. But they thought I'd exaggerate it. But one of them I met, Michael O'Sullivan, he was one of these guys who was <laughs> had his office raided, or his colleagues who were there had it raided, and he came up to me later and said, oh, you were right. what you said about Bob was right. And it was right, because I just thought he handled these people badly. I thought you should be able to negotiate these things through. I mean, it wasn't like you had a massive division. In the book, I, I go through the split of, of the National Civic Council split, and I make the point, and no one's questioned this, this went on for four years, and no one knows what it was about. I'm, I'm, really? Seriously? I'm not exaggerating. No, it starts off with an argument about a deposit paid on a house for a bloke who's moving up who works for Santa Maria in Hobart and is asked to go and work in Sydney. And there's some argument about some financial assistance. But it's so trivial that it can't be about that. And, well, what it really is about, I think, I mean, Santa Maria came to the view that people were trying to throw him out, mm. like it happened in the Catholic Worker um, in the, th the mid-30s. But he couldn't articulate that because it wasn't really happening. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, well, people, you know, people in positions don't like giving them up, and uh, that's understandable. But on the other hand, he never sort of said this, and it wasn't really happening. Although, I mean, if he'd said, look, I'm off, I mean, they would have said, great, you know, that's fair enough. But he didn't do that, and um, I really don't know what it was about. But so he didn't handle people. He didn't handle people well. On the other hand, he handled certain people very well because he got a lot of what he wanted politically. But he he wasn't. There's a myth about him, and people say he was a great organizer. He wasn't a great organizer at all. He had people under him who were very good organizers. So the people who did all the knocking on the doors, um, getting people out to vote in the trade union, getting them to go to the local Labor Party uh, branch meetings. They were the organizers. They were very good. But Bob never did any of that work. He sat above it. Was it more that he was an inspirer of oh, people who inspirer. had the... What he was you, a great you have a, an interesting chapter in that book yeah. that from memory has the term personality cult in the title. Yes, and so does. whilst he, on the one hand, he yeah. may have treated a lot of his workers poorly, it seemed, I'm, I'm guessing there was another extreme 
polar opposite, which were sort of well, what, the sycophants? He, or <laughs> well, the people he treated poorly, in my view, were the people who worked for him, but they were a very small number of his supporters. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, this is a... And I'm really talking about Melbourne because, you know, he didn't travel much, which was one of the mistakes he made. Look, there wasn't a lot of money. He didn't have a lot of money. The phone calls were expensive and stuff, but he didn't often come to Sydney. So when he lost control of the movement, he lost control of the movement in Sydney because he never really had control of the movement in Sydney because he didn't come to Sydney much. So I'm really talking about Melbourne, and they, they had offices in Brisbane and Hobart and uh, in Adelaide and Perth, but I'm really talking about the, the national office was in Melbourne. So the number of people who worked there were, was a small number. But growing up in Melbourne, I, mean, I was born in 1945, growing up in Melbourne, Archbishop Daniel Mannix was a cult figure. For the Catholics, Catholic, presumably. For Catholics. Only. The yeah. Catholics were pretty well downtrodden. Sanomary used the term, used to use the term, uh, we weren't prepared to be the hewers of wood and the drawers of water, meaning the people who did all the laborious task of bringing up wood for the fire and, and water for the, for the cooking and stuff in, in, the, in the olden days. He said we weren't going to be treated as, as second-class citizens. That was Manick's position. I think Manning's position was he came out from Ireland in 1913, becomes Archbishop in 1917, and he finds out that he was better treated by the ruling authorities in Dublin Castle in Ireland, the British authorities. He was better treated in Ireland. He was head of Maynooth College, the big uh, theological college. He was better treated by the ruling authorities in Ireland than he was treated by the ruling authorities in Melbourne. Because, I mean, the, the English, you know, with the upper-class Irish, they tried to have a reasonable relationship with them. They didn't look down on them in that sense. And so I think Mannix's position was, someone asked me to explain his position, and I said, well, basically, he's just putting his finger up to the Protestant establishment. So he ends up, starts off, he first comes off, he complains that Catholics aren't getting assistance in education. Uh, and then, he, then he's against conscription for overseas service. So he clashes... The Hughes Conservative government, the Hughes government in uh, 1920 around then tried to deport him. Uh, that was that bad. The, the British wouldn't let him visit Ireland. They took him off a boat, a boat that was trying to get into Ireland and, and, and sent him back to Britain. I mean, he was a very controversial figure. But he was a great tribal leader. So the Catholics in Melbourne, of my family, for example, um, uh, my mother's side was essentially Irish. My paternal grandfather was Scottish, but my father had brought up a Catholic. So... Um, the Catholics loved him because he was a great, and a brilliant speaker, and very funny, uh, very witty, and, and and had great jokes about people he didn't like. And uh, <laughs> he would and have, then, he would have loved Twitter. <laughs> yeah, he'd be great on Twitter. <laughs> and then under him is Santa Maria. Now Santa Maria um, is not witty and like many. He doesn't have this sort of irreverent humour. Because many medics could diminish people with a few quick lines. Bob couldn't do that. But Bob was a brilliant orator. I mean, I've never struck anyone like him. He was, a, he was an orator of the European kind. He, he, he wasn't an Anglo... Well, he wasn't an Anglo-Saxon guy. He was an, he was an Italian uh, parentage. And he, you know, you've seen some of these uh, European uh, politicians and stuff, particularly of that generation. I mean, they were great talkers. And Bob was, Bob was just a brilliant orator. So he could hold, you know, he could hold... Uh, he didn't speak that much in public, but he, he spoke for his own groups, like they'd go to the Palais Theatre down in St Kilda, which probably held 2,500 people, and he'd give these brilliant orations, and he could speak without a note. Uh, and, of course, later on he gets this um, television program from the early 1960s point of view, which runs on Channel 9 on a Sunday morning. The joke is that it always ran after the wrestling. It's, it sometimes did run after the wrestling, but it was sort of wrestling in itself at any rate. But he... He could, 
he, they didn't have a lot of money. Um, Packer, Packer Senior, Sir Frank Packer, gave him the airtime and the facilities free. They may have paid a bit of money for distribution, but essentially Channel 9 was giving it to him for s- seven minutes. And they would pre-record, and it would be pre-recorded on a Thursday, and then it would be f- freighted out of to get to the other cities to run on Sunday. Melbourne, it ran on Sunday. Now, Bob Santa Maria used to go into a room. They didn't have a lot of time. He wasn't buying this time. He was getting it for free, so he had to sort of meet all the deadlines. And he could, with the assistance of... Uh, he had a script, which he really looked at, but he had it. It was down there. And he could talk to camera for seven minutes without a break. Mm-hmm. Now, that's an extraordinary skill. Bill Clinton had it. There are a few people around who have that skill, but it's amazing. So he had a, he had a photographic memory that he could memory speech, uh, memorize speeches and scripts. So he could talk, and every now and then people would put up a, a quote from someone on the wall, and he had to make sure they were in line because if someone put up the wrong quote, it'd be out of line. But it was an, an, uh, it was an extraordinary performance. So he could. So in terms of the rank and file, they loved him. But the people who had problems with, with Santa Maria were the people who dealt with him. Like I did, you know. My my arguments with Santa Maria were not were not of the very strong ideological kind. I, they were minor arguments, but he didn't like them because he didn't really want to hear that. And um, so what I tried to do in the book is to be fair to him. I mean, I I recognise a lot of the criticism against him is is unfair, but you know, like the minute soon after he died, there were people who put in application. You've got to start off that he should be canonised. Oh really? Immediately. <laughs> and they were still going. And um, when I when I said I wasn't sure that this was going to succeed, one of them wrote me a note. Was very agitated about all this. But um, I don't think. I mean, I'm not saying whether being canonised or not is a good thing. But I mean, it's uh, that was the extent of his supporters. Now that's at one end of his supporters. But the ones who wanted him to be canonised were not were not were not silly. But the, the Vatican's not likely to canonise someone who's so divisive in the Catholic Church. Mm. Now, Santa Maria once said, um, I attended the, the um, when John Paul came out here, John Paul II came out here as the Archbishop of Warsaw, I think he still was. So we're probably looking around 1975 or something. Um, and he spoke at the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl in Melbourne and it was a nice balmy night and I went there, I took my mother along and uh, um, and a couple of others and we sat in the audience and Bob gave this devastating speech, but I, I always remember what he said, and I put it in the book because I got a good memory for these things. And um, I, I mean, there was no recording of it, but he said he was talking about the split in the Catholic Church over, and of course there were other pe- other bishops there from around Australia, but but the um, Bob was the principal speaker along with the man who became the Pope, Cardinal, wherever he was, Welger or whatever, um, and Bob said. He said, uh, he said, two things that I remember, and it, look, it's 50 years ago, and I remember. He said, um, people said that we were wrong to be in a situation where the church got divided. He said, and sadly, the church in Australia got divided over the time of the Labour split, he said. But I just say this, it's better to be divided and half right than to be united and totally wrong. It's <laughs> not a bad line. <laughs> and then he got up and said, Jack Lang was the um, Labour Premier of 
Sydney and New South Wales, a very divisive figure in the 1930s, he eventually got expelled as well and formed the Lang Labor Party. And of course the Lang Labor Party broke away from the Labor Party and they got a few seats in the federal parliament and Lang hated the traditional Labor leaders like Ben Chifley. And, um, so <laughs> Bob sort of said, um, um, the term that Lang's supporters used around Sydney that was that Lang was greater than Lenin, the founder of the Soviet Union, the leading Bolshevik Vladimir Lenin. They used to say Lang's greater than Lenin. And Bob, Bob stood up in front of this audience, this massive audience, probably must be 2,000 people or more, and said, and they said, he said, they said, Lang was greater than Lenin, he said, but I say this, we were greater than Lang. <laughs> because what he was saying, the Labour Party, uh, the Democratic Labour Party was more successful than the, the Lang Labour Party. And in terms of what it tried to do, it was. And as you know, I mean, in time, they won a few positions in the in the Senate. And uh, they were the most influential around the early 70s, half a, half a century ago. But um, so the Democratic Labour Party wasn't without influence. It's just that Santa Maria thought that they should do more and they should do it better. And I think there he was correct. But what he didn't understand, and people said to me, I remember a prominent priest uh, who became a bishop who was not unfriendly to Santa Maria, and I remember um, a Jewish atheist friend of mine who was an academic, Frank Noffermarker, saying very similar things. They said, look, if you're in, if you're in the Catholic Church, and if, if you're a bishop or an archbishop, you don't really want to be told what to do by by an angry, outspoken layman. And it's the same in a political organisation. I mean, if you're in the Labour Party, if you're in the Democratic Labour Party, and it's a very hard job because you're a minor party, you're getting about 10% of the vote at the best of the times across the whole of Australia. You've got a, somewhere between, at the best of times, five senators, the worst of times, one. And you're doing your best. You don't, you don't really want Bob on the phone all the time telling you you're no good. I mean... And that was the, one of the problems, that he was always on the outside. Mm. And Patrick Morgan and the good collection he did, for Mel, also for Melbourne University Press on Santa Maria's documents, I mean, he, he, he makes the point that Santa Maria was critical, if you go read through all his papers, and I've read most of them, I think Patty's read all of them, but um, you read, he was, Santa Maria was critical of, um, he didn't have much time for um, Scullin, who was the leader through the 30s. Now, by then, Santa Maria's a young man, Joe. Um, so he didn't have much time for Scullin, the Labour leader. And then Joe Lyons, he was a Catholic at 29, 31. Then Joe Lyons through the 30s, didn't have much time for Lyons. He didn't, believe it or not, he didn't have much time for Menzies at that stage. Okay, so he's the Prime Minister. He didn't have much time for Curtin. He didn't have much time for Chifley or Corwell or Evert or... Um, uh, McMahon or Gorton or Whitlam there's no one really that and Menzies he did and Fraser briefly but only when Fraser was not in that much time for Fraser he, in the end he wouldn't vote for Fraser there was in the Malcolm Fraser in the early 80s and he ends up pally with Bob Menzies and they would go around on a Friday night every now and then he'd take around a bottle of scotch and they'd drink scotch and complain about everyone else but as I point out in my book uh, in my book here, in, in, in 1970s, um, Menzies steps down in 66, he dies in 78, and Santa Maria's talking to him in the mid-70s. But in 1970s, Santa Maria wrote a book, The Defence of Australia, where he said that Menzies was hopeless. 
So as Patrick Morgan points out, I mean, everyone who was in the job centre said it was, it was no good. And I've made the point that apart from people like Mannix and his own, he's a very devoted family, a very good devoted family man, but I can't remember a time ever hearing Bob speak positively about anyone, really. He liked Jim McCauley, um, the guy, the poet, who became uh, professor of English at the University of Tasmania in Hobart, and a couple of others, some priests, but by and large he was just very critical of everyone, but then he'd never worked outside of the Catholic Church. Mm. I mean, from the start, you know, the Catholic worker, well, they got, they got, uh, they got support from Archbishop Mannix, and then the Australian National Te- Secretary of Catholic Action, that was funded by the, by the, by the hierarchy. The, the movement was essentially funded by the hierarchy until in the National Civic Council they weren't, but they still had money from a lot of money from Catholics. So he'd never worked outside this organisation. Never worked. He never worked in politics. He'd never been a member of a political party. He'd never worked in the public service. He'd never worked in a minister's office. He'd never worked in a business, apart from his own business. I mean, he ran the National Civic Council as it became, was a kind of business, but other people really ran it for him, by and large. He did, he did raise a bit of money, which is a hard thing to do, and I, I, I said that. And, and just keeping an organi- founding an organisation and keeping it going for 50 years is a huge achievement. Yeah, yeah. So he did a lot of things that were good, but he did. I never thought... He, he once said he didn't go into politics because he didn't want to make the compromises that were necessary for being in politics, but that's what democratic politics is all about. It's about making compromises. I mean, that's, that's what happens, and he didn't really want that. But then... I mean, that's what it is. So he didn't want to make compromises, but then he wanted to be influential. So he becomes influential, but um, not really the way he wanted. Uh, I was going to ask, Jared, for all this furious political activity across his life, all the organisations, the publications, extremely well connected across the political spectrum, what did he achieve for all of this activity? in your view, looking back? Well, looking back, um, he was right about communism yeah. when many people weren't. So I mean, the standard view around Melbourne University when I was a student in the, through the 60s, the early 70s, was that Sanremi was a fanatic and, you know, that you could do dialogue with the Communist Party and, you know, it probably wasn't. You could do like, dialogue with the Soviet Union and stuff and the Communist Party was never a threat to Australia. I mean, that was completely wrong. Sanremi was exactly right about communism. He was right about the Soviet Union. He was right about China. I mean, bear in mind from the early 70s, which is now half, half a century ago, when Whitlam uh, went to China and Australia recognised China in the 1970s, the, the general view around the intelligentsia was that, that Mao and the Chinese government had done remarkably well. When I argued the opposite of Mao University in the late 60s, I was marked down on my results. Uh, I said, I wrote that uh, grain production in China under Mao was lower than it had been in the 1920s under Chiang Kai-shek. And I was told that was wrong. I now find out that it was even worse than that. I mean, we, we now know that in the, in the Great Leap Forward, as they called it, which ran from 1958 to 1962, this is the time that Santa is criticising the Chinese leadership, we know that 45 million Chinese died of effectively a forced famine. Now, so Santa Maria was right on China, he was right on the Soviet Union, he was right on Eastern Europe, he was right on Cuba but particularly China, and I think he was right on Vietnam. Um, so because he, he, he identified the evil of, in, of, any, of uh, to, communist totalitarianism in a way that others didn't. In terms of political success, 
um, he had an impact on foreign policy, and it was uh, because he put pressure on, particularly on the Gorton and McMahon governments, to do more in relation to defence of Australia in the West, um, in West Australia. And he was influential in that foreign policy debate, and particularly in, in relation to uh, state aid for uh, for non-government schools, which was the real break. Had been a huge division in Australian politics from 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 the late nineteenth century. And Santa Maria was the. I mean, this is contested now, but in my view, not correctly. Santa Maria was the one who negotiated, got the big breakthroughs. Was with the Menzies government in 1963 at the Commonwealth level and with Henry Bolt, he was the Victorian Premier, at, at, with, the, with the Victorian government under Henry Bolt in 1967. And what happened in 1967 was there was always tension in Victoria, but they were never united for a long time. There was tension between the, um, the Liberal Party and what was called the, Na- the Country Party then. And so what happened in 1967, Santa Maria and others, and there were people around the DLP as well, decided they wanted to get individual grants to students. Not simply, The Menzies government in 63 brought down science grants, which all it could do, because in those days the Commonwealth government didn't control, and they still don't, education, but they could give grants, and they gave grants for science blocks. But they gave them to everyone, government schools and non-government schools alike. And Santa Maria in 67 wanted individual kids to get grants, students, oh, to the parents by means of the students, and what they realised was that Bolte was having real trouble with the country party and they said, well, hang on, if you don't give us assistance on state aid, we'll give our preferences to the country party. Now, in Melbourne, it didn't make any difference, but in Victoria, the rest of Victoria did. And you will lose your country seats to the country party. So they weren't going to give their preferences to the Labour Party, but they were going to reduce Bolte's number. And, and very quickly, the Liberal Party put up the white flag. So the two big moves in 63 and 67, the first at the Commonwealth level, the second at the state level, were predominantly due to Santa Maria plus others because he, he whilst the DLP um, had limited power, it still had, or influence, it still had some, and it had it through the preference distribution. We're seeing that today in different means with, with different parties. So Santa Maria used the preferential system um, and that was influential. And then later on, he was very... He was influential in, and I think now looking back, I think he was he was he was correct in his opposition to um, the increase in pornography that that commenced uh, in the sixties, but particularly in the seventies. He was a strong art opponent of that. He was mocked and laughed. But now a lot of the a lot of the sort of leading feminists in our time are talking about pornography mm-hmm. the way that Bob Sadam condemned it <laughs> fifty years ago. So he had an influence on that debate, and then within the Catholic Church because. Uh, he was a strong supporter for traditional values within the Catholic Church. I mean, he went along with Vatican II, um, but but he was really kind of a he was the kind of Catholic who who admired Pius the Twelfth. Mm-hmm. He was really a Pius the Twelfth man. He wasn't really a John the Twenty Third man. He wasn't the Pius the Sixth man, and he didn't he didn't approve of the liberalisation of the Catholic Church. Um, there he's uh, the person who actually um, appreciated Santa Maria's influence was George Pell on, on his... Um, I, I, I was in Melbourne at the time and I went to Santa Maria's uh, state funeral and Pell spoke there and I've quoted it in the book and 
he attributed Santa Maria to giving and his supporters because he set up a ma- another magazine called AD Two Thousand, which was about arguing in the Catholic, uh, arguing for traditional Catholic values. And Pell made the point that Santa Maria was very influential in keeping and in keeping the laity and the Catholic Church basically in line with traditional Catholic doctrines. Now he said this twenty years ago, so I'm not saying he would say that. I mean, the church has changed a bit in 20 years, but, um, and he understood that, because Pell was saying, well, look, you know, the Catholic Church in Australia never went like it went in the Netherlands where it collapsed. And he put it down to Santa Maria and those around him, and there were clerics and bishops and others. But he was always the intellectual leader because Santa Maria was, as I said, a great public speaker, but also a brilliant polemicist. Jared, looking looking back, you know, the, the description that, comes to mind from everything you've said and that is in the book is that he was on the one hand what you might call in today's language an uncompromising ideological warrior but I also wonder if looking back don't we have to consider whether he embraced this language or not maybe you know something about this but um, wouldn't he have to be classed as a conservative of some kind certainly at the social level or is it more complex than that oh no i think he was certainly he was a social conservative he wouldn't call himself a political conservative what what he would have um he he was really a he was really a social democrat Mm -hmm. uh, on the economic side and of course there was tradition in the catholic church with um rerum navarum which was the encyclical for the workers i mean he was someone i mean he wanted he wanted workers to be well paid he, he favoured government intervention. So he was a kind of old-fashioned Labour man mm-hmm. in the economic sense of the term, which is really why, I mean, Labour could have embraced Santa Maria a bit more as well because that's why he never voted Liberal in his life. He didn't like the political Conservatives. Later on, he became friendly with Menzies and, to some extent, Fraser. But Was that dislike primarily on the economic question? Yeah, sort of yes, he didn't. Free yeah. enterprise. Yeah, I remember him talking so. to me saying, you know, he said, oh... Uh, he said, you know, the country's run from Collins House. He was talking to me, he was talking about Collins House in Collins Street in Melbourne where all, a lot of the big companies had their offices. And he, he, regard, he didn't like capitalism. He didn't like big business. Later on, he got money from them. You know. <laughs> <laughs> he got to survive. But if you, if you go back to around the time that he becomes known in politics, which is, he doesn't... Look, when the Labour split happens, or well, it's about to happen 54, it happens 55, and he's in the news from sort of 54... And a new, one of the major Sydney newspapers wants to do a profile of him. They can't find a photograph of him, and no one knows who he is because he wasn't known. So if you look at him around that time, of, just around the time of the Labor split, he would have, he would have um, been a kind of supported Labor's interventionist. We're talking, you know, 1950s, 60s, Labor's interventions, social social policies. He was a favour of, you know, strong... Uh, he'd been in favour of the... I mean, I, I became best known as a critic of the industrial relations system when I wrote my ch- article, the, the Industrial Relations Club. Santa Maria wasn't in that at all. He was a strong supporter of conciliation and arbitration, of, of government intervention at those areas. So he, I would say he was a social democrat in economic terms. He was a, political, he was a conservative in, in, in um, social terms. And he was an anti-communist, uh, which would cut across both of them because... I mean, a, a, a lot of the strongest, it's often forgotten, a lot of the strongest anti-communists in the 50s and 60s were not Catholics. Mm. 
but they didn't have a big following. People like a friend of mine, Laurie Short, who ran the iron, well, dead now, ran the Iron Workers Union. He was a really tough, he was a really tough atheist anti-communist, but he didn't have any following. So, so Santa was, uh, I mean, an anti-communist could be socially progressive or socially conservative. Santa Maria passed away in the late nineties. Yep. It's now twenty twenty-two. Yeah. It's been a time of political tumultuous political time globally, lots of social, cultural change, lots of technological, rapid technological change. Even if you just look through your own life, which mirrors what many would regard as a massive, if you like, social, political, demographic shift amongst Catholicism in Australia, which has always been a big part of the Australian uh, story post-settlement, strong connection with the Labor Party, and that's mirrored in Santa Maria's life. You come from a sort of Labor-supporting Catholic family, but you go on to work for John Howard, like like you said, in the 80s, who goes on to become one of the most uh, successful Liberal Prime Ministers, and now it's in the Liberal Party that you find the most prominent Catholics. We've had, mm. had a couple of Catholic Prime Ministers in yes. Tony Abbott and yeah. Malcolm Turnbull. I think Turnbull was a convert, but nonetheless, uh, strong representation in the Parliamentary Party and one assumes a strong uh, Catholic vote these days for the Liberal Party. I mean, that's a lot of different things I've just sort of put on the table, but I just wonder what on earth you think Santa Maria would make of <laughs> Australia in 2022? <laughs> well, he was always culturally pessimistic. Uh, I used to joke that... Uh, I don't think he liked my jokes, <laughs> but I, I used to joke that our position at the NCC was when things were going badly in the early days of the Whitlam Labor government, I used to joke that... Um, <clears throat> The pessimists would say that it's all ruined, we're all finished, and the optimists would say, no, there's still a chance if only there was another general depression or a third world war was my <laughs> contribution. <laughs> San Maria was always deeply pessimistic about, about much. Um, look, he, if he was around today, he'd still be fighting very hard, pretty well for everything he fought for before. But if he was looking back, I think he would say that he was vindicated on his, on his social conservatism and on his attitude to communism. Um, he'd probably claim the same with economics. I, I wouldn't agree with that. But it's not. you take someone like Mary Whitehouse, who was absolutely ridiculed when she objected to pornography in Britain, and she was a bit weird, and she used to write three letters a day to the Director General of the BBC. But there's a recent documentary and a book come out by people who are strong opponents of her, who now say, looking back, I mean, what Mary Whitehead said about the emerging pornography, and, w and she was right. Mm. And I mean, on those kind of issues, Santa Maria was right. Now, you know, I would think, I would, th <laughs> I would think he'd be pretty much the same. I think he would be contemptuous of the Labour Party. I think he'd be contemptuous of the Liberal Party, but he'd prefer them in office than the Labour guys. I would think, um, and he would be contemptuous of much of the Catholic Church, and he would think he could do a better job than the Pope. <laughs> <laughs>